Now on view at SCAD Fash, Manish Aurora's Life is Beautiful. Renowned for dazzling designs and a rainbow of colors, Manish Aurora has brought the talent and craftsmanship of India's rich sartorial history to the global forefront, earning international acclaim on runways across three continents. Designing in India since the 1990s, Aurora's glittering garments celebrate extravagant expressions of self through varied materials, techniques, and silhouettes in a triumphant union of Western and Eastern aesthetics adapted to today's multicultural society with a touch of humor. Find out more at scadfash.org. Support for WABE comes from 100 Miles, a nonprofit committed to preserving Georgia's 100-mile coast. Protecting this critical coastal ecosystem takes all of us. Watch the stories of the innovators and future leaders who help keep our coast flowing at OurGeorgiaCoast.org. From WABE in Atlanta, this is City Lights. I'm Lois Reitzes. Thank you for listening. For singer-songwriter John McCutcheon, cabin fever had nothing to do with irritability or listlessness. If anything, being isolated in North Georgia resulted in his writing 18 new songs in three weeks, which are now on the album Cabin Fever, Songs from the Quarantine. John McCutcheon will tell us about the new recording, and we'll get to hear a few of the songs. First, in observance of Pride Month, a military experience with combat not limited to the battlefield. Former Air Force Captain Mark Gibson wrote a memoir called Served in Silence. The book chronicles his 20 years in the military as a gay man while the don't ask, don't tell policy was in effect. City Lights producer Summer Evans spoke with Mark Gibson in 2019 about his journey from serving in silence to living authentically. She began with asking about the title of the book. It came to me in my first deployment to Afghanistan. We had been under attack at the base camp, and the next day we were deployed to go out and check the surrounding villages. And the, the thought came upon me as I saw the, the carnage from the night before that here I was serving in, in, in protecting a country that uh, for more rights than I had in my own country, and I felt like I was serving in silence. What did it feel like the day that you looked up at the TV screen and you saw that Bill Clinton had signed into law the Don't Ask, Don't Tell policy? What was your first reaction? Boy, I remember it well. I was uh, sitting at a keyboard for data entry at the Springfield uh, Military Entrance Processing Station, and I just felt a complete calm come over my body. My, my shoulders relaxed, and I just kind of sunk in to the chair, and I was just taking it all in. So you were calm because initially they didn't allow anybody that was homosexual to be in the military. And so this was one step of being like, they can be in the military, just don't talk about it. Correct. Okay. Right. And so 
if somebody was openly gay, were they discharged? They were, right? And and little did I know at the time, um, all it, it was a false sense of calm because the don't ask, don't tell policy would soon to prove to be such a demoralizing and dehumanizing policy. So if they saw you out of the base openly with a same-sex partner, could that warrant them discharging you? It could definitely warrant an inquiry. I noticed that the first half of your book is all about your childhood and growing up in a household where everyone just kind of swept the issues under the rug, you know, didn't really deal with any issues, just don't talk about what's uncomfortable. With those coping mechanisms that you learned as a child, how did that influence the way that you talked about issues in your adult life? Growing up, emotional intelligence wasn't a buzzword or an attribute that you would even consider in the 60s and 70s and and growing up. And looking back now and after writing a memoir, I see how vitally important it is to establish that uh, emotional intelligence and, and grow that to be very healthy to be able to have successful relationships in the future. So I, I kind of um, look at that as a roadmap as to what not to do and how you have full, fulfilling and enriching relationships. Patti LaBelle's music was huge in your life, getting you through a lot of challenges, both in your childhood and adult life. And when you were about to go off to boot camp, you made a mixtape for your mom with the song There's a Winner in You. Can you talk a little bit about LaBelle's music and how that's helped you get through some difficult times in your life? Yes, absolutely. Um, I look at uh, my relationship with uh, Patti LaBelle and her music. There's another song, um, in addition to There's a Winner in You, there is uh, Don't Block the Blessings. And when you've been blessed, it feels like heaven. And I I really believe that it was the lighthouse in in a a tumultuous sea of emotions at times and um, not very typical for a a white kid from upstate New York to latch on to R&B great like Patti LaBelle. But it just seemed to be the, uh, the landscape of my soundtrack for my life starting very early at age 17. I will be your friend Be only for now Got to pull you back What did you want your mom to take away from those songs that you put on a mixtape? Because I know that she was going through a lot in her life right then. Yeah, I think that um, when you go back and listen to the the lyrics, it is it, it's basically being a friend, but also being a sound sounding board to help somebody through a difficult time. To even when you can't believe that there is a winner in you, if there is somebody that is on the sidelines that's cheering you on to believe that there's a winner in you, then it could help you through the some difficult times. I know that you wrote about coming out to your mom when you were married to a woman. What was her initial reaction? I think that what brought us to the intersection of the conversation was a genuine concern. She was recognizing um, that I was slipping into a very dark and very sad moment in, in time in my life. And she basically was trying to ask probing questions and, you know, why are you unhappy? Why are you 
um, dissatisfied or, you know, what is wrong? And and then we just came upon the, the comment where it just got quiet. And finally, she just came right out and, and asked me, are you having a hard time dealing with your sexuality? And did she go on and tell the rest of the family or was that kind of the secret that was kept between you two? No, no, that was part of, um, we, we, we did a really good job at perfecting the don't ask, don't tell policy before it was ever enacted into a law. So that was, once again, another layer to the secrets that would be kept. Speaking of being married to a woman, I know that was one of the reasons that you were like, looking at being a homosexual and you were like, I don't know what to do right now. Do I erase this? Do I push this down? If I marry a woman, then maybe I can live this heterosexual life. You wrote that you really cared for her and that she was a kind woman, but it was one of the biggest regrets you had. I really do feel that that was one of the biggest regrets and really one of the only regrets in my life is um, bringing an innocent bystander into the the mix of the shame and the the secrecy that wasn't fair and um, she was she was a great uh, she was a great lady and I just felt bad that because of the times and in society that it was not acceptable for someone to be their true self. With being in the military and being married, then uh, I think in my mind it was a sure deal, then you, you definitely can't be gay. How did you approach conversations in the military when it was brought up about your personal life? You know, a lot of people have asked me about um, living um, maybe a double standard in the in the military, and that is not how I viewed it. I, I viewed it as um, I took the oath of office uh, very seriously, and uh, I didn't feel gay or straight or bisexual. Um, I didn't feel that sexual orientation was appropriate at any level while in uniform. You know, especially as an officer, um, there were just certain things. I, I would never want to consume a, uh, an alcoholic beverage while I was in uniform. I didn't want to dis- disrespect the uniform. And so while in the military, it was, it was actually pretty easy for me to keep it very compartmentalized. What drew you to the military? I grew up in a, a really small town in upstate New York in the village of Boston Spa. And I think like a lot of young people in the time, during the times, there weren't a lot of options. If you weren't on a track to go to college, then you were on track to find a, a job on the local economy. And um, I saw that the military was my ticket out. It was my ticket out, and, you know, I, I really believed in uh, the military slogans at the time, be all you can be, and aim high. And um, I really felt that, um, looking back now, as a young person with unharnessed uh, energy and maybe a penchant for mischief, this would be a great uh, structure for uh, this young person. And uh, so initially I just decided to join the Air Force. It was primarily because I didn't really like camping, so the Army was out. Not a great swimmer, so the Navy was out. Um, And I just really liked the uniform. I know that you lived off base wherever you were at. Can you talk about living that double life of why you live so far from home base? 
I did it intentionally to um, try to establish a, a resemblance of a normal life, at least when I was off duty. And in order to do that, I didn't want to live in the same community and because I didn't really feel like I would be able to let my hair down, so to speak. So I often chose to live either in the next city over, at great distance um, away from the base, which was um, taxing because it added to the commute to the long 12, 14-hour days. Another difficulty that you talked about on top of serving in silence was also your struggle with PTSD. This was back in the late 90s and early 2000s. Were they really talking about PTSD or was there really a program to help people transition that who were deployed and coming back to America? It was um, a lot of things in the military are checklist driven. So it's a box checker. And I think that it was on the surface where the medical community was identifying that there may be a problem. My example, when I returned home the first time, I did a great job in making sure that everybody else got to see the doc and ask questions um, or the chaplain or counselors. And it never dawned on me, it never occurred to me that I should be doing the same thing. Can you talk about the instance and target when you had your first experience with PTSD? You know, even you mentioning it, it just is a flood of memories that comes back to, um, I remember the the day, I remember what I was wearing, and it, it was pretty normal. I was grabbing my caramel mochiato from Starbucks at the front of the counter, and then everything just started to uh, cave in and, and crash where the tunnel vision and the lights and the sounds and it was like a cacophony in my mind that I just had to get out of the, the store. Did you realize that you were experiencing PTSD in that moment? No, I, I had no idea. With the tightness of my chest and the breathing and the sweating, and I didn't know. I, I had no idea. I didn't know if it was a heart attack. I, I just knew that something was overtaking my body, and I had to get out of the, the tunnel vision of the 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 lights and all of the sounds from the cash registers. And this was after you had been deployed twice? Correct, yes. Two times, two two times deployed to uh, Afghanistan at Bagram Airfield in support of Operation Enduring Freedom. I highlighted the part in the book on page 232 that said, I did not want to be buried in soil of a country that I would have died for, but did not allow me to live authentically. And that really just spoke to me. It just really woke me up after I read that. How did you come to that decision? Because it came to the the realization of, um, with the title of the book, Served in Silence, that I was not permitted nor allowed to bring my true self to the day. And therefore, I felt that it would be very disrespectful if I um, did allow myself to be buried in American soil. So earlier this year, The Supreme Court ruled that the Trump administration can begin to enforce its restriction on transgender people serving in the military. This would mean that those who do not serve in their biological sex can face discharge. During your time serving, there was a ban on people being open about their sexual orientation, and now it's about gender identity. What do you believe that administrations are trying to solve by silencing these groups? You know, I I really don't know because I, I believe that once we allow people to bring their true self to the day, 
in any type of environment, whether it's the military or the corporate environment, that typically those people contribute more and, and they show up in a big way. And the second wave of the don't ask, don't tell policy is just another way of dehumanizing and demoralizing a person that raises their right hand in, in order to um, support and defend the Constitution of the United States of America and with the ultimate being death. And I just, it just baffles me. It just bogs. I don't understand why you would want to limit somebody based off of um, their, their sexual identity. Unfortunately, it wasn't until after you had retired from the military was the ban lifted by President Barack Obama. And you have the quote in the book by him. And I was wondering if you could read that for us. We are not a nation that says, don't ask, don't tell. We are a nation that says, out of many, we are one. We are a nation that welcomes the service of every patriot. We are a nation that believes all men and women are created equal. Those are the ideals that generations have fought for. Those are the ideals we uphold today. Can you tell us about that day? It was a great day. You know, I just really felt complete. I felt like I did the day that I raised my hand when I was 17 years old and the pride and, and the joy that uh, being able to serve our country. And then that just made it uh, with the, President Obama repealing the don't ask, don't tell policy. It just somehow was a way to mend some wounds. Former Air Force Captain and author Mark Gibson in a 2019 conversation with City Lights producer Summer Evans. Gibson's book is served in silence. This is WABE Atlanta. Singer-songwriter John McCutcheon draws from a wide range of topics for inspiration, and he is a prolific artist. Still, writing 18 new songs in three weeks is most unusual. Those songs comprise his new album, Cabin Fever, and he's with us now via Zoom to tell us more about the recording. John McCutcheon, welcome back to City Lights. It's great to be here, Lois. Thanks for the invitation. The 18 new songs tell stories of those most deeply affected by the pandemic. First, would you tell us how you ended up at your cabin? Well, I was on tour in Australia when all this started, and the, the recognition of what was actually going on had really not hit over there. The only person, in fact, I met who was paying any attention was another American, Harry Shearer, uh, who was also performing at this big folk festival I was at in, uh, in Victoria. But there, the Aussies are a friendly crowd, and and you know you're stuck, you're crammed in a tent with four or five thousand of them, and then afterwards people are coming up and slinging their arms around your shoulders, saying, "Hey, let's take a photo, mate!" Uh, and um, you know, packed concert halls and so on. So I, and then a twenty-four hour plane ride. I arrived at Hartfield Jackson and realized that well. If I haven't contracted this, I'm vaccinated against it, but that doesn't mean I shouldn't 
separate myself from all my loved ones. So uh, uh, my wife Carmen and I have a little cabin up uh, near Ella J and we talked it over and I decided to go up there to make thing to make sure everything was safe before I moved back home with my wife and my 89 year old mother-in-law. Um, and so it was just me and my dog <laughs> up in Cherry Log and uh, and I had lots of time, and as is often the case, and, and sort of meshing it with seemingly important things in my life or in my world, I just said, well, I'm going to explore this, and I decided to write every day. Without the intention of it being an album or anything, I was just, you know, it was a, pro- it was a process of exploration, catharsis, whatever you want to call it, um, and suddenly I had enough songs for an album, and being as... All my other income sources had were drying up before my very eyes, like every other musician in the world these days. I thought, well, I'll put this out and see if any people are interested in this. Let's talk about Frontline. What can you tell us about this song and its message? Well, Frontline is a is a is a term that most people are familiar with. I wrote uh, this is one of the first things I wrote just as I was seeing all the incredible sacrifice and bravery um, by the medical community and but not only the medical community, the EMTs, the uh, the people who are delivering food to people, the the people working in grocery stores and just you know keeping the world running in this new reality and I just wanted to have something that paid honor to them. I'm on a 12-hour shift, seven-day streak. I haven't held my kids in over two weeks. I could tell you more, but I'm too tired to speak. This is life on the front line. Not enough gloves, not enough masks, not enough hands, and too many tasks. When is help coming? Everyone asks. This is life on the front line. On the front line, there's no place to go, facing the foe where it's found. On the front line, there's no time to be scared. You know, when you're not writing with an end product in mind, you're not doing the kind of editing that says, no, 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 this is too topical. No one will get this. You know, for me, it doesn't matter. It's just something that I needed to write at that time. I was posting little homemade videos of the songs to a group of my songwriting students who have their own kind of private Facebook page, and they started sending them around, and lo and behold, you know, I was getting tens of thousands of views of this, and I thought, oh, well, I guess, I, if nothing else, it's useful right now, and I guess that's, no matter what your job is, your hope is to be useful. <laughs> A lot of the songs that are, end up comprising uh, Cabin Fever, and frankly, there are more songs uh, in it than are on the album that were written, were inspired by phone conversations that I had with friends. And one of the things I think most of your listeners will remember that in the early days of 
the quarantine, you were calling a lot of family members, you were call, calling a lot of old friends, just checking up on, on how they were doing. But I also found in my case that I really afforded myself a lot more time uh, to talk to people than I would normally do. Like you have this internal clock that somehow says, okay, you've been on the phone for 15 minutes. Gosh, that's a long time. You better invent some excuse to, you know, to end this conversation. But I was doing a lot of hour-long conversations. Mm -hmm. And one was with my, my old best friend from college who is still connected with my college up in Minnesota. Um, he's, a, he's a potter and he's the artist in residence up there. And he happened to be telling me about a, a knee replacement operation that he'd had at the Mayo Clinic. And while he was down there, he simply mentioned that the, the Dorothy Day House, which was the homeless shelter, had closed its doors. And what an inopportune moment it was in that history to, to suddenly not take people in and uh, uh, sheltered in place came out. came down from the top everything normal must stop you may not know that took place long ago for lots of us folks here in town y'all just don't know we're around I'm one of the ones you forget When tragedy makes you upset No name and no face Just a small bit of space No email, no mail, no phone No chance that I am not alone I've sheltered in place for years Nobody knows I'm here. I'm one of the many who just disappears. I've sheltered in place for years. At the stop, while light with my small cardboard sign, as I slowly walk down the line. No word need be said as you stare straight ahead and the windows roll up one by one and you head off to home when you're done. I've sheltered in place for years. Nobody knows that I'm here. One of the many who just disappeared sheltered in place for years. My own home, it isn't too far. An underpass, a tent, or if I'm lucky, a car. Wasn't all like this and won't be forever, but I know there's no such word as never. Orthoday House closed its doors 
Till this virus is over, can't stay there no more. Don't know for sure, but I doubt there's a cure for the worst things that drive us apart. And that silently poison our heart. We've sheltered in place for years. Nobody knows that we're here. We're some of the many who just disappeared We're sheltered in place for years John, that's stunning. Absolutely stunning. And while you were singing, I was also thinking about... Um, the fact that you went to school at St. John's in Minnesota, um, frigid conditions in early March when that shelter shut down, um, and wondering what became of those poor people. Well, you know, that's kind of what the song was hoping to elicit, that that thought in the listener that well here's a here's a phrase we've heard over and over and over again and wow some people have been really invisible really living off on their own for years that guy i mean there really is a guy at you know the mountain industrial exit where i go to my home and smoke rise stands there with a with a cardboard sign. It's like his job. And and I was wondering as I wrote this, well, I wonder what this guy is doing because nobody's opening their windows. Singer-songwriter John McCutcheon. We'll hear more about his new album, Cabin Fever, after a short break. This is WABE Atlanta. The field of mental health counseling is growing rapidly, and Richmond Graduate University can equip you with everything you need as a licensed professional counselor while integrating your faith into your clinical practice. Programs are offered in Atlanta, Chattanooga, and online. Apply today at richmont.edu. That's R-I-C-H-M-O-N-T dot E-D-U. You love free, and at Ameris Bank, so do we. That's why we're proud to offer worry-free, hassle-free Ameris Bank free checking. Manage your money your way with convenient access to digital, mobile, and telephone banking, all with no monthly service fee or minimum balance requirements. At Ameris Bank, we're with you. For more information or to open an account, visit our local bankers in person or online at amerisbank.com slash free checking. Other fees such as overdraft fees may apply. Ameris Bank, member FDIC, equal housing lender. Let's return to my conversation with singer-songwriter John McCutcheon about his new album, Cabin Fever, Songs for Quarantine. John, what attracts you to using the first-person narrative in your songwriting? I think it's a way that opens up the story that a third person just doesn't do for me. Back when I was a kid, I got um, I got my first guitar when I was 14, and I knew I didn't have any money for lessons, so I schwinned my way down to the public library, and the only book that was in the library under the Dewey Decimal System 
title of Guitar was a book called Woody Guthrie Folk Songs. And I had no idea who Woody Guthrie was, and assuming the book was a guitar instruction book, I faithfully started on page one and started to sequentially go through each song, assuming that it was arranged in, in you know, increasing order of difficulty, and it took me a really long time to realize it was alphabetical. Oh. <laughs> what are the chances that all the easiest songs start with A? Well, one of the first songs in the book, because it was numeric rather than alphabetical, was the 1913 Massacre. And it was this story of a true event that happened in Calumet, Michigan, back in, on Christmas Eve in 1913. And it was all in the first person, and I remember coming to a line that said, I'll take you through a door and up a high stair. And immediately, the, the cinematic nature of speaking in that way opened up that song for me. And I was there. I, I, I knew the door. I walked up the stairs. I knew exactly what it looked like. And it was an invitation into this song that really was very powerful for me. So through the years, one of the things about using the first person is asking the listener to crawl inside a new life. And what was it that Kafka said? He said it about books, but it can I'm sure it could be said about music. It is the axe to the frozen sea within us. So hopefully, you know, it's like you can't turn away when someone is talking directly to you. And that's what I hope will happen. Would you talk about the night John Prime died? Well, um, I knew John. Uh, we had played together a number of times. And, you know, whenever we ran into one another, we, <laughs> we would very fondly remember a night that we shut down a bar in Cambridge, England. We were both playing at the Cambridge Folk Festival. You know, I knew that of all the people that I knew who had contracted the COVID-19 virus, that there was probably nobody I knew that had a more compromised health than John. Uh, he'd been through two different kinds of cancer. Uh, he'd had a rough life. He you know, lived five lives in one. And frankly, I wasn't surprised when I heard he died. But like most of the world, I think I was more moved than I expected. Hmm. And um, I literally sat down immediately and... Uh, in these times, each day feels like the next. Just tonight, my old friend Richard sent a tearful text. I could feel his sorrow on the screen, wondering if I'd heard the news tonight that John Prine died. seemed to pluck his songs out of thin air told of tiny triumphs and lives filled with despair complex in their simplicity so honest and so true just like every writer wished that they could do there's an angel from Montgomery 
place that they're called paradise where even sandstone sings all the losers lovers loners have gathered round the throne in a mighty choir to welcome john prime I remember a night, a bar in Cambridge town. The band took a break, we took the stage and shut the whole place down. It was Stevie Goodman's birthday, just eight years since he died. We sang, drank, and remembered, we laughed and then we cried. Just like tonight, when I heard John Prine. Cause there's an angel from Montgomery that's finally taken wing A place up there called paradise where even sandstone sings All the losers, lovers, loners gathered round the throne In a mighty choir to welcome John Prine home Tonight I'm sitting here thinking about the stories that we tell And the blessed few who really do make heaven out of hell So say hello to Stevie, I ain't ready for you yet And in the meantime I know you'll enjoy that nine mile cigarette there's an angel from Montgomery who's finally taken wing. Place up there called paradise where even Sam Stone sings. All the losers, lovers, loners have gathered round the throne in a mighty choir to welcome John Prine home. All the losers, lovers, Loners have gathered round the throne. Mighty choir to welcome John Prime home. Do you think your own isolation? and the way you were coping with that isolation had an impact on the musical and lyrical elements of these songs. I, I'm wondering if, you, if that song in particular would have poured out of you in the way it did if you weren't alone. Well, that was the last song um, that I wrote for the album. And I think in some ways, every song leading up to that point prepared me for being able to channel all the things I was feeling. And in some ways capture what a lot of people are feeling because one of the things that you hope to do with the song is, you know, open it up and invite 
people in that moment and everybody's had them when somebody sings something especially if it happens to be topical and you go yeah that's what I'm thinking that's what I'm feeling I have often done these intensive writing exercises before I mean one time we talked about the album Ghostlight and I had done a similar thing. The difference here is that there was absolutely nothing to distract me. I wasn't home saying, oh, well, honey, let me help you with the supper tonight. <laughs> I, 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 I wasn't going out to mow the grass. I wasn't prepping to go off on another trip. This was the purest examination of my, my job as a songwriter and I was talking to another songwriter just yesterday I, and and she said it so well she said it's like your epidermis is completely gone and everything that touches you truly touches you and this the more you get into the groove the more it just pours out of you and I've learned um, from being a songwriter for over 50 years now that I don't know how all this works and that I just have to be open to the whole opportunity to explore all this. And it's, uh, it's fascinating. It's, it's like turning a page in a book and you don't exactly know. You're, you're watching it with the reader. So I think the isolation, this particular isolation, had a good bit to do with it. When I've done this stuff before, there have been a lot lower percentage of keepers in this one. I would get done with it. I would look at it and say, well, wow. I guess there's 18 songs on the album now. <laughs> I think one of the joys of being home for many of us is having more time with our dogs. <laughs> yeah, I mean, my dog, as I say in the song, my dog don't know no quarantine. She's just happy I'm around. <laughs> My dog don't know no quarantine, she's just happy I'm around. She'll fall asleep right at my feet, never make a sound. Content that I can sit for hours reading in my chair. Sometimes she'll open just one eye to make certain I'm still there. Or maybe eating something. Maybe getting clumsy. Clumsy enough to drop it right here. No daily trips to gym or store will stay for days at home. Where she Next to my wife, uh, no one has been more amazed to see me as present for as long. I mean, uh, even, you know, I was gone for three weeks and I was home for, uh, and then I was in the cabin for three weeks. Um, you know, that's a long shift to pull and you get home and um, all of a sudden there's nothing on your calendar that you're, pre you're preparing for so you have to learn how to really be at home um, and those of your listeners who travel for a living or who are musicians or whatever you you know you're there's not that moment when you got to go pack your car uh, or pack a suitcase or make sure all your gear is working before you head out the door. No, you are just here, and how are you going to use that? So on this album, there's there's funny songs, and there's 
uh, pensive songs and there's like John Prine really you know heartfelt songs and for me that's all part of it I mean it's going back to that Woody Guthrie songbook there were kid songs and love songs and historical songs and topical songs and funny songs and angry songs and it opened up the whole possibility of what a writer could and should and in some ways must do. What do you think your idols, Woody Guthrie and Pete Seeger, might have to say about the moment we're living in? Well, we're living in a lot of moments uh, right now. We're, we're living in a time when there's a great reckoning going on where even people who didn't think that you know racial inequity for instance had anything at all to do with them realize it does um, we're coming to a reckoning in southern history and what that means and how we talk about it and 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 display it um, and we have something that has no political implications at all, this virus. I mean, I realize that some people are saying, well, if you're a Republican, you don't wear a mask, and if you're a Democrat, you do wear a mask, and that's ridiculous. The virus is, is not going to pay any attention to whether there's a D or an R after your name. Uh, it, is a, a, it is a public health thing, and, and we're trying to learn how to do that. What would Woody and Pete say? They'd probably say, pay attention, try to tell the truth, roll up your sleeves, and see what you can do to help things. John McCutcheon, it's always a pleasure. And I thank you for spending time with us now to talk about cabin fever. I think you may be quite the antidote to other people <laughs> suffering from it now. Well, and, and the interesting thing is you know, we're all learning how to do new things now, whether it be how to, con how to have musical events. You know, the ASO is doing, you know, online performances uh, in smaller groups and individually. And with this, it's, you know, okay, yeah, it's an album, but some people can't afford it. So we put it up on the website as a pay what you can. And, you know, if you don't have any money, you lost your income, doesn't matter. You know, here, it's a gift. Everybody needs music right now. Maybe maybe broke people more than most. And then other people are paying, you know, 25, 50 bucks for the album. So it's, it's an interesting new response to a situation we've never been in before. So I think uh, Pete and Woody would wholeheartedly approve of that. <laughs> well, they, you know, Woody especially knew plenty about people with no dough. Yes. Or do-re-mi, as he used to call it. Singer-songwriter John McCutcheon. His new album is Cabin Fever. There will be more information on our website at wabe.org slash citylights. This is WABE Atlanta. Gardening is especially popular as people's self-shelter in place. Last spring, I spoke with Carol Hunter of Truly Living Well, a center for natural urban agriculture, and Jay Olubayawu of the Food Well Alliance. 
We discussed the benefits of gardening and urban farms. Here, Carol Hunter explains the importance of not only what we eat, but how it's grown. Well, one of the things that we do um, at Truly Living Well and with so many other urban farmers is that we're growing natural and organically. And because of that, we make sure that there are no chemicals, no pesticides, no herbicides in our soil. The way we're able to make sure that happens is creating our own soil, taking natural products in our environment, taking that waste, and turn it into something truly wonderful. Um, truly Living Well was founded on that principle of the soil first and, and building up the soil. And from that, we've been able to grow thousands and thousands of pounds of food for our community. And that was one of the reasons we teamed up with Foodwell Alliance in the very beginning. We were actually demonstrating how this wonderful composting was creating this healthy food, and we were then getting that to our community. It's so fantastic to hear this, and yet it also seems like such a no-brainer. I mean, when I look at a, a food label, for example, on something, frozen or prepared or a can and see things with Latin names and numbers. <laughs> you know, how does one even begin to create food from such synthetics? And here you are taking something perfectly natural, and that's what's best. Well, when we think about, go back into our history, we used to eat directly from the land. So many of us in these urban environments, we moved away from that farmland, away from that life. And what we are promoting is that we can recapture that. We tell people, if you're even, if you're just growing in a pot on your patio, or you've got some space in your yard, begin to reconnect with the soil, begin to grow something. Um, so many of our children don't know where their food comes from. Right. So even as a small demonstration of saying this is the source of that food, it's a great teaching tool. It's also a healing tool when you get your hands into the, <laughs> the dirt. Um, so we just encourage people to reconnect with the land. Tell us about Truly Living Well's College Town Farm. Our College Town Farm is located at 324 Lawton Street on Atlanta's west side in the Ashview Heights community. Um, it's just about seven minutes off of the I-20 corridor, um, so it's very easy to get to. But we've got about five acres there that we are actually doing urban farming. We demonstrate food growing in raised beds, in ground. We've got a hillside, a grow house, a greenhouse, um, and a composting operation. Both of your organizations, Truly Living Well and Foodwell Alliance, focus on urban agriculture. How do the goals differ for urban communities? So at Foodwell Alliance, we are a local collaborative of leaders who are working to build thriving community gardens and farms. Um, our belief is that food is a tool to build community and that thriving communities and gardens strengthen the hearts of cities and, and, and other places and spaces. Um, urban agriculture is not something that has kind of a one-size-fits-all um, answer. Um, it is everything from growing in your backyard, growing from your balcony, um, shopping with local farmers at a variety of our farmers markets that take place throughout metro Atlanta and throughout the country as a whole, 
gardening and farming are primarily for those who have some land and the means to invest time and money in an uncertain outcome. Buying local organic produce is often much more expensive than buying produce at Walmart or at the supermarket. How are you working to bridge the gap of the high cost of farming and the high cost of buying locally farmed produce? Well, I'd love to approach that two ways. One of the things when we look at the cost of health care in our country, ah, yes. astronomical. So when you look at food as your medicine, eating fresh, healthy food. I, I call food an intimate commodity because whatever you put in your mouth affects your total well-being. And so when we are putting the right things into our bodies, you will actually begin to decrease some of those other areas that, I mean, most of the diseases that are affecting us now are diet related. So let's start with the diet. If we begin to eat a more healthy or consume more healthy food, then when you factor that into your costs, it begins to look a little bit differently. The other thing I like to tell people is that when we eat locally, you're also supporting our local economy. So when you buy food locally, you're also supporting local farmers in your community. Carol Hunter, is the executive director of the Truly Living Well Center for Natural Urban Agriculture. Jay Olubayawu is director of programs and outreach at the Food Well Alliance. Today, there will be free training online for people in Southwest Atlanta interested in developing aquaponics-related small business opportunities. You can find more information on their website, trulylivingwell.com. You've been listening to City Lights, our daily celebration of Atlanta arts and culture. We'll be back tomorrow at 11 a.m. with movie recommendations as Pride Month continues. Our producers are Summer Evans and Ryan McFadden. Kevin Rinker is our engineer. And I'm Lois Reitzes. I would love it if you'd follow me on Twitter at LOIS. R-E-I-T-Z-E-S. You can also follow us on Facebook at W-A-B-E City Lights. Today's show and the City Lights archives are at wabe.org slash citylights. And do check out our new podcast, on iTunes, Stitcher, iHeartRadio, or wherever you get your podcasts. Thank you for listening to 90.1 WABE, Atlanta's Choice for NPR. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. 
Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR. The world is full of mysteries. Are ghosts real? Is that yogurt expired? Hey, the unknown can be scary. But when you donate to WABE, you know where your money is going. Your gift supports the journalism that keeps you informed and the programs that pull back the curtain on complicated stories. Help us make the world less mysterious. Become a member now. Go online to wabe.org slash donate. And thanks.